This presentation is from Managing Design 2016, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Please join me in welcoming <laughs> Alison to the stage. Thank, Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. So I'm going to share with you some of the things I've learned from working with this range of different design teams. Um, based on my own experiences and also a lot of conversations I've had with other people who are managing design teams in agencies and in-house here in Australia and in the UK. Because what I've noticed, especially in recent years, is that a lot of teams are experiencing rapid growth and we're all facing similar challenges around scaling to meet demand, maintaining your culture and your quality as you grow and remaining profitable. So I'm going to talk to you about how to do these things in a sustainable way so that obviously at the end of the day you still are profitable. So I'll just give a bit of context about the, the level of design management that I focus on. Um, at the heart of your design team is the, the craft, so the application of methods and skills to design for specific needs. Then a layer above that, there's some coordination around defining the design strategy and direction for a particular program of work, and a lot of focus on the day-to-day -day operations and management of people and multiple projects. The next layer up looks at designing for the design team. So here we're setting the vision and strategy for the overall team and looking at operating models and policies. And this is where my experience and count on creating uh, those operating models and continuously refining them. Um, it's the spreadsheet side of design and I, I quite enjoy that. So coming to our first challenge, design maturity in general is increasing, opportunities are flooding in the door, how do we scale to meet demand? So in a way we've created this problem for ourselves, right? We've spent years educating our internal stakeholders and, and clients about the value of design, the, the methodology, the philosophy, the roles, and the budgets required. Now everyone gets it. They all want a piece of it, uh, which is great, right? But oh, how quickly that hurrah becomes, oh, when you all of a sudden need to hire 20 designers, like next week. So this is where we start to look at staffing models and partner engagement models. So what kind of roles do we need, how many, uh, and how do we bring in and manage contractors, agencies, consultants? This is the one of the more popular staffing models that I've seen, one where you have a dedicated set of designers focused on a particular theme. And this has worked in-house and on the agency side. We have a, a program lead who oversees multiple projects and manages the, the client. And then a project team that comprises maybe a service designer or a UX designer to focus on the intent and the stories around the solution. A visual designer to help bring that to life a little bit more and communicate the outputs. And perhaps a separate front-end dev and project manager if those skills don't sit with some of the other team members. So I've seen quite a lot of debate about whether designers should have the, the front-end dev and the project management skills themselves or whether they should be separate roles. Um, I kind of think while it's desirable 
for everyone to have those skills. I lean more towards separate roles, just to try and minimise this trend towards looking for unicorns that have everything, which we all know are really hard to find if they actually exist at all. <clears throat> so the key here is there's probably a core team of around three designers looking at each kind of project or topic. Um, within each program, there could be two sets of, or two or more sets of these designers. My theory is around one manager to six designers at any one time, um, only because I've started to see the effectiveness on that, of that manager can slip if you're managing more people and more topics. In terms of the theme, on the agency side, that really depends on your client project. But in-house, the theme should probably align more to customer type or phase of the customer journey than to organisational departments. So you might see a certain programme de dedicated to business customers, another programme dedicated to retail customers, or you might see teams focusing on different phases of the journey, like explore and decide, how we set up new customers, and then what we do with our existing customers and managing their growth. Um, some of the challenges with this model then becomes when you have to duplicate and clone people for all of the different programs of work that you're getting asked to be involved in. And that's when we start to look at partner engagement and how do we um, involve contractors and agencies and consultants. So while the maturity and capability of in-house teams is growing, I think there's still a role for external partners. However, the engagement models are changing. So a few years ago, in-house teams were drawing on partners to provide education and to help build capability. Now there seems to be a trend towards engaging externals to increase capacity and to keep those projects in, and knowledge in-house. Um, you see some models here like external providers in blue where teams have more external staff on fixed-term contracts than they do permanent internal staff. This can create some challenges around culture and quality, but it also provides the flexibility that teams need to grow fast and, this, and the flexibility to scale back if you need to. So I don't really see this model changing that much in the foreseeable future. Uh, there's, there's still a role for traditional project-based engagements, but again, the, some of the more successful projects I've seen are ones where the agency team are collaborating full-time on-site with the client team, again showing this trend towards companies, design-driven companies wanting to keep the knowledge and the IP and the experience and the control of that in-house. Um, for some agencies, it can be quite challenging to have their staff on client site full-time, especially senior staff that you need to help run your business. Uh, so some suggestions here are around negotiating a model where your team's back at home base on Fridays, Friday afternoons at least, so you can reconnect with your broader team. And to look at regular rotation of those teams every three or six months so that your designers are getting the diversity they expect when they are on agency side, and your clients are getting the fresh eyes that they expect when bringing in external partners. Now, 
these staffing and partner models, I'm sure you guys have lots of ideas about why these work, why they might work, major fails that you see. So hold on to those questions and thoughts and hopefully we'll have some time at the end and we can come back and have a bit of discussion around why and why and or why not they work. So on to our second challenge. We're meeting demand now, but the skilled levels in our team varies. How do we ensure quality? So there's a few things here for managers to consider around prioritisation models, design training, toolkits, and structured activities for collaboration and critique. There comes a point for mature in-house teams when they start to wonder, how big do we get? Should we continue to grow the central team of design experts that we hire out to projects and programs? Or should we actually look at the democratisation of design and embedding people out in all of the other areas of the business? How do, when, we relinquish control? From what I've seen, when companies or teams get to this level of maturity, they tend to go with a combination of both. So they maintain and manage a core set of um, people to focus on the top priority programs. And they establish programs for design training and toolkits so that some people can design for themselves. Top priority programs. Everyone thinks their project is top priority, right? So how do we prioritise? A common prioritisation questions in-house or on agency include some of these. So it's about understanding what do we care about most? How does this project align with our goals? Do we have the capability and capacity to actually deliver quality on this? What would happen if we didn't do it? And how might we gracefully decline or defer if we, don't, if we can't do this now? So we all know that this is easier said than done because in reality we have this innate desire to please. So if someone asks us to help, especially someone important, we, we, we find it really hard to say no. We also hate seeing work going out the door without some kind of design involvement. We just can't help ourselves. But while the intent is good, the overall outcome is actually quite bad because we end up spreading ourselves too thin, we work too many hours, we get stressed, we get ill, and we deliver subpar work. So learning to say no is actually a key skill to have when you're managing design teams. Toolkits. So this is a way of gracefully declining work, perhaps, by pointing people in the direction of guides, templates, style guides, pattern libraries that they can use to help design for themselves. I've seen some teams create uh, reusable patterns that people can use like Lego to build their own interfaces um, based on what that design team has already deemed best practice. So while there's an overhead in creating, managing, and to a degree monitoring the use of these toolkits, it does allow for the democratisation of design and for people to DIY. And at least people are applying some form of design thinking to their projects because something is better than nothing. Um, and it frees up the core design team to focus on those top priority programmes. Continual education and training is critical to maintaining quality. 
And again, there's a time and budget overhead in this, but it's an investment we have to make if we want to stick around in our industry. Because uh, So for the design team, uh, it's important to understand what the hard and soft skills are that we're looking for and to focus on behaviours, especially around resilience and leadership, as well as the craft. A good way to understand strengths and gaps is to do an assessment of individuals against the skills matrix. And this can help you to understand the type of training you need to be providing both on and off projects, and to establish coaching and mentoring relationships where people can be training each other, which is actually quite a cost-effective way of providing ongoing professional development. Also think about the training opportunities for your clients, internal or external, and how um, this plays into the whole teaching a man to fish analogy because it's better to work with people who at least have a basic understanding of the design process than, than not. So some of the options here around capability workshops where you might do an introduction to the design process, um, teach people how to create journey maps or usability reviews and so on. And then, of course, there's design training around those specific toolkits. Finding structured ways to allow for collaboration and critique are also a very valuable way of, uh, of increasing value and improving quality. I'm a big fan of gener generative workshops and design critiques with the broader project or the broader team in general. Um, the focus of these sessions, oh, I, I like to book out a time each week and encourage the program leads to tap into the wealth of ideas and uh, really push the thinking of their project teams through these sessions. What we focus on depends on the phase of the project, uh, but some of the typical questions are, how might we solve this high-level need or objective? Or what if this service was designed by Walt Disney, a company that's well-known for experience design? Or more at the critique side, how does this particular design deliver against the brand intent or the client needs or the customer needs? Um, I've seen some reluctance to get involved in these sessions in the beginning because everyone, they're so busy to spare the time. But usually once they see the volume and range of ideas that come out of these sessions, they're keen to get involved. It's also really great for staff engagement and morale which is increasingly important as your teams get bigger. <clears throat> and that brings us to the third challenge. Things are changing really fast. There's so many new faces. How do we maintain that great culture that we started out with? Um, when you're small, it's easy to get everyone together, and your celebrations can be quite frequent, quite elaborate, but that becomes logistically and financially challenge, challenging the more you grow. So, and it also can put a, a threat to profit, profitability. So it's about looking at um, how you can scale that. Understanding what makes your team a great place to be, what people really value individually and collectively is a good, is a good activity. It's normally a combination of a few things, like the physical environment you provide, the type of work and growth opportunities that are available, um, being inspired by smart thinkers, inspirational leaders, and having like-minded colleagues. 
as with any great design, it's often the small and personalised things that make all the difference. So these are the little, the little things we have to be careful about changing when we get bigger and start to become more cost conscious on staff benefits. I know some of the other speakers today are going to delve into culture a little bit more, so I'll just touch on a couple of quite obvious points about how to um, keep the team feeling connected, especially when you're starting to work across multiple locations. So team days, always good. Sometimes become a little less frequent and a little less elaborate when you've got lots of people involved, but they are a good opportunity. Um, I like to make them a combination of learning and fun because especially on the agency side, those days out can be quite expensive, so we have to make the, the most use of that time. Um, it's also a good time to practice those collective skills and techniques that you might have identified during that skills matrix to assess, assess gaps. Uh, breakfast, lunch, drinks, dinner, always, always good. The key here is to provide a range of time slots so that you can allow for people who have flexible working requirements due to after-hours commitments. Easy chat tools for sharing and bantering. banter are always good, especially when you're working across multiple locations. Um, we use Slack a lot for that, and it's, it's quite an easy way of uh, getting to know someone and understanding their personality before you even meet them face-to-face. -face. And besides these group activities, it's also important to acknowledge personal milestones and preferences at an individual level. So that could be as simple as acknowledging, celebrating birthdays and life achievements, um, down to providing people's favourite stationery, tea, booze, whatever, without blowing the budget completely, of course. Because um, these are small personal ways to um, help people feel valued. Uh, the thing there we can see is that to maintain the culture and quality actually requires a, a lot of dedicated effort. And um, you may be wondering, how can one manager do all of this? It's so much to do. The short answer is it's not a one-person job. So I think it's at least a two- or three-person job to manage a design team, more as the team grows. The trouble on the agency side especially is that adding managerial and admin staff can threaten profitability. So coming to our fourth challenge, money. How do we remain profitable as we grow and how do we justify the costs? Financial models are crucial for any small business and, or any business and especially for small, small agencies. So we've got to focus on creating financial models to manage costs, revenue, profit and utilisation targets. It's also good to have a pipeline and sales conversion targets so you can ensure you've got the right amount of money flowing in. As I said, the covering non-billable staff and policies around culture can threaten profitability. So you need to factor in these costs when you look at the forecasts of forecasting the cost of growth. Also good to have rules of thumb around estimating projects so that you can ensure that any potential hidden costs are calculated into proposals. Whoever's responsible for managing these models um, has to 
share it with the broader management team on a regular basis so you can discuss and refine and also agree medium and short-term strategies around how to manage cash flow challenges. So this might be, if, if reserves are getting low, what will we look at to, for lines of credit or quick sources of income, or what might our cost freeze, freeze measures look like. Uh, it's, it's quite important to look at also at having a diverse range of revenue streams. So income from product licenses, uh, additional service, services are a good way of supplementing uh, revenue from consulting time. And often those additional things can have a higher profit margin as well. Lastly on this one, that having a, a staple or bread and butter offering is quite good because that can guarantee a steady flow of income during quiet times. The other side of the coin, and lame pun intended, is to have an arsenal of stories around how to prove and demonstrate the value of your work. Um, we're getting much better as an industry at measuring the value of design, and there are lots of stats out there, general stats like design-driven companies outperform those others by more than 200% and things like that. But I think it's worth having your own personal stories to draw on um, to demonstrate the value of your team and your approach. So this is looking at specific metrics for how you've increased revenue, reduced um, costs and increased savings, increased adoption, increased satisfaction rates, and looking at the return on investment for project fees against impact on the bottom line. Another way of demonstrating extra value is to quantify the dollar and time value of the, the extra brain power that you're putting on projects. So like the design jams, the generative workshops I mentioned before. Also highlighting the calibre of your staff, especially if people have a particularly relevant qualification or are recognised as thought leaders in the industry on a particular topic. Uh, after a few projects, your sponsor normally starts to experience the value of your work and, and accept the costs that are involved in delivering it. But they'll always be looking for ways to maximise the value for money. So this is where we look at what, what does lean look like for your team so you can demonstrate a commitment to making the best use of their budgets. And also exploring what a tiered rate model might look like. So you can offer progressive discounts as uh, so a combination of these tips should in theory help you to grow uh, justify your costs and grow a team in a sustainable way so I'll just summarize those four points again and then hopefully we've got time for some questions and maybe a bit of discussion around some of the the models that I've shared how do we scale to meet demand so looking at models for staffing your team. And my, my recommendation is around having a dedicated team per theme, where that theme aligns to a customer type or phase of the customer journey. Here we're also looking at models for how we bring in external partners for extra capacity and capability. How do we ensure quality? So this is all around prioritisation, focusing on what's most important, 
and finding ways of gracefully declining and deferring work if you can't take it on. Continually training designers in how to improve their hard and soft skills, especially around resilience and leadership. And providing toolkits and training that enable people to design for themselves if you can't really focus the time on helping them. And creating structured activities around collaboration and design critique. How do we maintain culture? So really important to understand what it is that people love about working in your team and find ways that you can manage the costs of still providing the same benefits uh, and then them not exploding even when your head count does. And also ways to keep people connected when you're working across multiple locations. And then how do we remain profitable and justify costs? So constant focus, attention and refinement of the financial models and forecasting for what the cost of growth is going to look like and creating proof points, specific metrics that demonstrate the value of your work. So, that's enough from me in a nutshell. I'd love to hear questions, comments, thoughts on some of this stuff. Thank you. So, with questions today... Um, for the other speakers in the room, if a question comes up that you know you're going to answer, it's completely fine to say, I'm going to deal with that one later, and we'll still ask it, but um, yep. like we wouldn't usually I'd do that. I'd someone else answer it. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, because we've got, like, like, it's a niche topic with lots of overlap, there'll be other people who mm. are going Delve to answer more it. So, into somebody, it. yes, I saw a hand up. I am Leo from Alive. Hi. Um, just wondering about the ROI that you mentioned in the end. I think one of the things that we really struggle back in our organization is actually to associate the actual benefit to the work we did and all the external elements. So we do apps, for instance. Once we release an app that's design-led, there's still a lot of effort that has to be going in terms of like marketing, change management, and all yeah. that other stuff. So how do you actually... Sometimes you don't get those stats until a year, two years down the line. Um, but it's about being diligent to follow up, and especially on the agency side as well, um, seek permission to have access to those numbers and to talk about them. So constantly monitoring and, and measuring and following up is my, my tip there. Um, and sometimes it's around the way you, you craft the stories. So you might have one little bit of insight or data, but you can still create a good story around what that means. Hi, um, I'm Katya. Um, Hi. I think you've just described every single problem I have. <laughs> every day, right? <laughs> every single goddamn day. <laughs> um, what, I guess my question for you is these, these are great tips and um, I would love to do all of them, but I am the only manager mm. in my company and I have 12 humans <clears throat> um, who all work for me, but none of them are managers. So mm. when you're the management team of one and your job is managing director, finance, HR, biz dev, the whole lot. And, what and guidance? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that thing too. Yeah, don't forget about the money. Yeah. Um, what guidance would you have for, for people who are in um, my position to, I don't know. Prioritise. What, maybe what do we bite off first? Yeah, yeah. Um, I appreciate that, that challenge definitely. So one of the things... Um, I do is kind of provide visibility to the team that these are everything that this is everything that's on my radar 
But this week or this month, I'm going to really zoom in to staff development or recruitment or financial models and then everything else that comes in going, we should do this and we should do that and can we have this? It's like, yes, defer. <laughs> um, and try not to get too distracted by those, those daily um, fires in a way and, and stick to, I'm really going to nail this part of our team um, quite quickly, it might even be a couple of weeks, and then move on to the next one. So it's hard because every day you're going, oh, I need to do that, I need to do that, but you just don't have time. Also, lobby, you can, can you try to lobby for more management staff to come in? Oh, so then, then it is the last one around the financial models and understanding the cost of growth and what you'd need to see in terms of revenue to be able to justify non-billable staff to help you on the management side. Hi, um, Hi. Sunil from ISABAR. I was interested in training. You mentioned training on and off projects. And, yeah. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on resourcing models to help training on project mm-hmm. um, and models you've used or you know, yep. your insight on that? Yep. So um, creating a skills matrix where you're defining all of the core hard and soft skills that you need to see in your team to deliver quality work and what that means at the different levels, um, the different grades, juniors, seniors, principals, directors. Uh, and then looking collectively, where are your strengths across your different team members and where are the gaps Um, And then when you're making resourcing project decisions, try and buddy people up so that they can, and you can explicitly go, hey, you're really good at doing client presentations. This person really needs to develop develop that area. So on this project, be conscious that um, this learning and coaching needs to happen and look for opportunities to provide that. And the flip side the more senior experienced person might be looking to grow their sketching or visual design skills, which this other person is actually quite good at. So then we go, okay, now let's train and share on that skill throughout the project. So it's a good way of improving skills and and quality as you go, of, of time to do that training on projects. So you might see that actually this particular skill is quite a weakness across the company or the team. So in our team days, we're going to do a session around analysis and synthesis and how to do that well um, and use those opportunities to provide collective training. Okay, well, thank you very much, Alison. Right. That was fantastic. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Managing Design 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.